This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. How to go from zero to a startup job in nine months. You don't need to jump through hoops or blast out resumes. You can start today. Praxis combines a three-month professional boot camp with a six-month paid apprenticeship at a startup that leads directly to a full-time job. Startups aren't just for coders, sales, marketing, operations. Even if you're not sure what you're interested in, Praxis places you with a dynamic, growing company where you do work you love, become part of a team, and make a difference. Praxis is tailored to your goals and your interests coaching sessions, group discussions with your peers, skills training, and a portfolio of projects along with the apprenticeship create a powerful combination of real-world experience and intensive learning. We are relentlessly committed to helping you discover and do what makes you come alive. We don't just prepare you for a job, we actually give you one. No degree is required to get started on your career. Whether you're an ambitious go-getter right out of high school, a creative thinker who's bored in college, or a college grad looking for the next step, discover Praxis. Great jobs are waiting. Are you ready? This week on the Isaac Morris Podcast, entrepreneur Tim Shermack. If you're interested in entrepreneurship, you're going to love this episode. It's packed with valuable insights and stories from Tim's entrepreneurial journey. But just a heads up that the first 15 minutes or so start off with a deep dive into the NFL and the Minnesota Vikings. So if you're here for the entrepreneurship, jump ahead to the 18-minute mark and enjoy the episode. Tim Shermack is joining me today, and we're going to get into who he is, why he's here. But Tim, I want to start off with a very direct question. What is the first thing you do every morning? Wow, that is intense. Um, we don't mess around here on the Isaac Morehouse podcast. Yeah, yeah. Um, honestly, I've never really been been one for having like a strict routine every morning, but the last probably two weeks, uh, I've been waking up, I, I walk over to the fridge. I have like a uh, half a bottle of cold brew coffee. Um, and how then much, I head how to, much is half a bottle in ounces? Um, I think the bottles I'm drinking are like 10 ounces. So it's like five ounces of cold brew coffee. Um, and cold brew typically has higher caffeine content than normal coffee. So it's essentially the equivalent of drinking almost a normal cup of coffee. Um, and then I just put on my sneakers and I head to the gym and what I've been doing, uh, the last couple of weeks is, uh, I'll go and I'll shoot hoops for like 20 minutes or half hour or whatever. And then basically, honestly, it just depends how I feel. If I want to go actual like lift weights and workout, I'll do that. Probably half days. I'm kind of lazy and I just go home half, you know, half days. I'll do some squats or some bench press or whatever. I basically feel like doing, um, when I was younger and in much better shape, uh, 
uh, I would go to the gym like every day, like it was like a religion at 4 p.m. And I'd do all the compound moves, you know, like deadlifts and pull-ups and squats, um, kind of the whole like regimen. But now that, um, you know, I have a company and uh, I can't just, you know, do whatever I want at any hour of the day, <laughs> um, I – I kind of always judged people who would go to the gym in the morning because I was like, don't they know that the body's levels of hormones peak at 4 p.m.? So that's the time you should be lifting weights. And that's just not not going to happen oh, with my schedule. 4 p.m. is like the most unrealistic time. That's just when especially if you work with people across the country in different time yeah, zones. Yeah, because I'm East Coast. So yeah. like it's basically right in the middle of the day. It's like 3 people. to 6 p.m. is like the hot zone where the highest volume of stuff. People I work with, everybody's the most active during that phase. So so yeah. when you shoot hoops, do you keep track of your shooting percentage? Um, I do on free throws. Okay, uh, so, shoot, so you, you want to share? How you doing? Um, I can actually honestly tell you that I average about eight out of 10, which I'm pretty happy with. Dude. Uh, so yeah, that's really good. So I, I've been shooting hoops for the last couple months. I go and I'm down to the gym here in the neighborhood. I do, I make a hundred baskets and, uh, I kind of have a little, you know, I try to like do things to give me a little bit of cardio. Like, Oh, if I miss, I can only let the ball hit the ground once or something like that. I get to run around a little bit, but at the end, cause I, I am not a long distance shooter at all, like 15 feet and closer. I'm just fine. But three-point range, I'm just not a, a deep shooter. And so I usually make the last five buckets that I make have to be threes. And I keep track of how many it takes me to do that. Uh, over the last two months, my average field goal percentage from three, totally uncontested, is like 30%. So, <laughs> Well, that's like, you know, almost like Steph Curry. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's like Steph Curry's. I think he sh- I th- actually think he has a better percentage than that from beyond half court in, in live games with defenders. So, um, Tim, I'm so excited to have you on. I have known you were going to be a podcast guest from the day I launched this podcast. I was like, you know what? I'm going to try a podcast. I just, I just want to talk to people I find interesting. I had this list and it's taken me like a year and a half to get to everyone on that list. Cause I keep getting other people that come up and it's always like, Oh, I can always go to Tim. He's always there, you know? And I thought (laughs) I'm taking you for granted. What if you all of a sudden decide you're never going to speak with me again? I got to get this in before we have a falling out. Yeah. Well, you know, the, uh, the, the lions are probably going to beat the Vikings this year. So we might have a falling out when that happens. I, I would be willing to bet money on your Vikings with no one at quarterback over my lions this year. I am so unhappy. We'll, we'll, we'll have a wildcat every snap going to Adrian Peterson and we'll still be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I truly, I truly would still put my money on the Vikings. So we're going to talk about the Vikings in a minute. I want to give a little bio of you here. If, if it's even possible to do Tim is <laughs> this should a be interesting marketing guru. He's a great copywriter. He is a hustler. I mean, one of these guys that just sees opportunity everywhere and acts on it. He's great at connecting people. He's great at giving people things for free. He is a master of creating social capital with people that he likes and values. He will buy them books. He will do work for them, little projects here and there to just create a network that's worth way more than whatever he's spending on, you know, the little bit of time and money to take somebody to coffee or send them a book. Very, very impressive. He has built a marketing company that started as purely a service company. And now there is a heavy software component to it. 
um, which is pretty awesome for for a non-technical guy uh, like you. I know you're you and I are both non-technical. That's a pretty that can be a pretty tough transition to to get into um, you know going into the the software space a little bit. So I want to have you talk a little bit about your your origin story, background, the work you're doing now, how you got into it, some of your rules and tips for good marketing, building social social capital, all that stuff. But we're gonna we're gonna start with the Vikings because you're from Minnesota. You are from, and I know how to pronounce it, Candiohi County in there you go. rural Minnesota. So the Vikings, Teddy Bridgewater, is he done for the season now? Oh yeah. He he uh he had a complete tear of his ACL as well as his knee was dislocated. Um, I just saw the full report actually. And there's, there's an article that was just shared by the Vikings trainer that said that had they not had an ambulance on the scene right away and taken him to the hospital, he might've actually like lost his leg. Um, and he, he like never would have played again. Um, it's like, it's that serious of a knee blowout uh, essentially his uh, tibula separated from his femur entirely um, and basically um, what what the trainers and what the people at the hospital were saying was he's just extremely lucky that there's no nerve or damage to his uh, to his arteries behind his knee because there's a lot of nerves and arteries um, in your leg there uh, and uh, if if that would have happened, it would have been the end of his career. Right are you, there. Are you really depressed right now? Because you were a big believer in Bridgewater as the guy that was going to carry this team to. I mean, you, you guys, frankly, should have beat the Seahawks in the playoffs last year. Um, outplayed them in in many ways. I mean, you're 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 a team on the rise. Are you are you pretty distraught? Yeah, it 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 sucks because uh, <laughs> that's like the one thing I really look forward to every week for just a couple months of the year, right? Is like yep. watching watching my Vikings because now that I live in Florida, I just bought a home in Naples last year. Uh, you know, I'm not really plugged into the social networks of you know like Minnesota sports fans, obviously being here in Florida. So I bought the NFL Sunday ticket and I get to watch my Vikings every Sunday, and it it sucks because. Uh, there was a lot of people that were kind of picking the Vikings this year as kind of like a dark horse to go to the Super Bowl um, because our our defense is, I would argue, maybe the top in the NFL, honestly. Um, and we bolstered our offensive line this year because um, that was the problem last year is they just couldn't block for Bridgewater. Um, in all the stats, he was the most rushed, the most hurried, the most hit quarterback in the NFL last year. And he still managed to complete, I think, 70% of his passes. Uh, obviously, preseason doesn't matter, but in the series where he was playing against the ones in preseason, you know, for like the first quarter, second quarter, et cetera. Uh, so far this year, Bridgewater had thrown two touchdowns, no interceptions, and his completion percentage was 80%. Man, I mean, so I, I always like to sucks. raz you and as a fellow NFC North, you know, uh, fan who suffers a lot as well. I like to raz you like, Oh, Bridgewater, he's not that good. And you're always like, no, he's going to be a top five. But in, in fairness, I mean, the way the NFL works, it's like, there's like top five quarterbacks who are just amazing and they can make a bad team and make them good. Then you've got those bottom half who are just like not even a real quarterback. But then there's always like eight or 10 teams that have a guy that's good enough to carry your team. If the team, all the pieces are there, you could win a Super Bowl. The Joe Flacco's, the, you know, um, the guy who's not a great quarterback, but he's, he's good enough. And you know, there's no question. He's the starter. He'll be fine. I, I feel like that's Matt Stafford. People complain about him with the lions, but I'm like, look, He's the starter. We know he's the starter. He's fine. If the rest of the team is good enough, you can win with him. And that is Teddy Bridgewater, maybe with 
with some additional benefits there, like you knew who your QB was. You at least had that locked down, even if he's not, you know, Tom Brady or Peyton Manning. Yeah, exactly. You know, I would obviously never compare um, Teddy to, you know, uh, you know, Peyton Manning or Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers. Uh, you know, like I'm, I'm a hardcore Vikings fan. Like I'm first and foremost a Vikings fan, right? So there's a lot of people that are really into fantasy and everything. Like I'm not like, I have a high football IQ. I can have a very intelligent conversation about football. I played football, but I'm a Vikings fan. Like I don't order like the NFL red zone so I can watch highlights of other games and see how my fantasy team is doing. Cause I don't do fantasy. <laughs> uh, so it, it, it just really sucks when Teddy went down. Cause like I'm first and foremost, um, a Vikings fan. And, uh, you know, that being said, I'm not not delusional, though. Like, you know, Teddy's obviously not Aaron Rodgers. He's not Tom Brady, but he's absolutely good enough to win a Super Bowl, um, especially when we have such a great defense right now. In what, what are they going to so, what are you what would be your ideal who they bring in for the QB this year that would make you say, yes, we have a chance again? Yeah. So um, I, you know, theoretically, you know, a lot of people are interested in Colin Kaepernick just because he's dual threat. He can run. I actually don't don't like that because I would prefer to bring in a veteran who's like, you know, a pocket passer, because that's really our system is we have AP. We have lots of play action going on um, and we have a great defense, too. So we don't need an insane playmaker quarterback, you know, uh, uh, I would I would like like maybe maybe a McCown or a Mark Sanchez, like. Someone who's, you know, oh, who's come a veteran. On. Come who, on. Where's the upside with Sanchez or McCown? Come they're, on. You would rather have them than Kaepernick? There, there really isn't any upside, and that's fine because I'm waiting for Bridgewater <laughs> to come back. So you're just I mean, saying honestly, the season is shot. No, yeah. I Well, no. What I'm about Tim Tebow, shot. dude? He's still out there at large. And I'm not joking. I, Everyone th- I am such no, a huge I, Tebow fan. <laughs> I actually would not mind Tim Tebow either. <laughs> and uh, the uh, reason is he he knows how to win. Uh, this is kind of a theory of mine uh, that a lot of offensive coordinators in the NFL and just really head coaches too, but mostly the offensive coordinators, they're just egomaniacs. They're so obsessed with their specific system that even if they have great players with lots of natural talent, they will force those players to fit into their offensive system, even if it's not the strength oh, of the talent. Well, this is a great, this is a great time for a quick economic analysis, rational choice theory here. So the way the NFL works, if you're an offensive coordinator, you have to, to make a name for yourself, to possibly get a head coaching job, to move up the, the ranks, you've got to have a brand that you're known for. And so you have to have some kind of innovation or offensive style that you do uniquely better than everyone else. And that's what you get recognized for. Whereas if all you do is say, I just adapt to whatever the talent is, even if it works, all the credit will go to the players. It'll be like, wow, isn't it? Wow. Aaron Rodgers is so good, whatever. And because you don't really have a unique brand or an identity, it's too easy for that to get overshadowed if you just adapt all the time. So I think there's an incentive for those guys to push really hard to force everyone into some wild and zany thing that, that they'll be remembered for. It's high risk, high reward, but they'll be totally forgotten. Even if a team is successful, I think if it's very unclear, if there's not a consistency to what yeah, kind of offense yep. they run, then, then the guy has no brand, you know? You know, that's that's really what's happened to the Vikings the last couple of years with Norv Turner is, you know, Norv's like signature offense is play action, 
with kind of slow developing medium and long routes where your offensive line has to be able to hold their blocks for probably three seconds because we're doing five steps, sometimes even seven step drops. He, he's uh, known Philip Rivers used to get killed all the time. When yeah, was yeah, there. totally. Yeah, totally. But it works well because in the past when Norv has had a great tailback like LT or now he has Adrian Peterson, defenses have to respect that. So they can't really just um, keep people back in coverage. A lot of times they're stacking the box. So if you have a great offensive line, you know, Norv Turner's signature offense is these these longer routes that are 15, 25 yard passes. Yeah, if it if you have a great line, that's that's all great. But the reality has been for the Vikings <laughs> the last couple of years, our offensive line is just shit. Yeah. And we can't protect our quarterbacks. I mean, last last year, Teddy took more hits and was rushed on his throws more than any other quarterback. Um, and that's I, I can't remember which website tracks those I, stats. I can't, but they that, that's really impressive because it's always yeah, hard they, to surpass the Lions track. in that in that field in that category. Yeah, they, they uh, absolutely track those stats. And that's why, like, when people are down on Teddy, I'm always just a fierce defender because I'm like, hey, if you look at the stats, they're like, yeah, he only threw 14 touchdown passes last year or he's not attempting enough passes. He's not a real quarterback. It's like, yeah, that's great that you're into fantasy. But, like, if you actually watched the games, <laughs> you, would, you would know that he's like, oh, running- I have alerts on my iPhone. I know everything I need to know. Uh, yeah, exactly. Okay, so for people who are not into football, sorry for that. Um, but this makes me realize we we just need to do like we need to do like an entire football episode sometime. Might need to get you know a couple of us on do do a football podcast. Um, but we're gonna move on from the Vikings. Are you okay with that? Too soon. Yeah, I'll find I'll find some really like creative transition to link this to marketing somehow later on. Okay, perfect. So let's talk about your origin story. You. Grew up in rural Minnesota, and I know that your family, some your parents, your some aunts and uncles, kind of entrepreneurs, small business owners with a lot of different ventures, some some agribusiness stuff, uh, staffing agency. There's a lot of like welding and manufacturing stuff where you came from. What's your education and sort of career trajectory when you were 18, 19, 20, and, and how did you end up? doing what you do now, which is, um, we'll talk more about, but which is uh, basically a, a software and sort of marketing firm for realtors. So, so tell me about how you got into that. Yeah. Well, I guess from an early age, I was, you know, when I was in junior high and kind of into high school, uh, I discovered I was interested in marketing and persuading people. I really loved the art of persuasion and crafting a message or crafting, you know, like, uh, a uh, marketing campaign that would get people interested in something. So um, uh, I went to youth group a lot as a kid. I was very involved in my youth group at church in high school. So kind of how I channeled those energies um, and those talents, I guess, was into my youth group. So um, in high school, actually, like if you were to ask me, hey, Tim, what are you going to do when you're older? Right. I told them, oh, I want to be a pastor. Because at that point, how I was kind of channeling that uh those were um, that, that was probably the most persuasive character in your circle was a was a pastor, I suspect. Yeah. And, you know, the whole the whole game of like youth ministry and just a church in general beyond youth ministry fascinated me of like, how do you get butts in the seats? So you, you know, start working you, on growing a goatee immediately. Oh, yeah, totally. totally. <laughs> and I was organizing lock ins. No. Uh, um, yeah. But I mean, in high school, I uh, really wanted to be uh a pastor just because I, I thought, okay, this is a really cool, a really cool occupation, I guess, 
that combines my my interest in um, in philosophy and theology and the intellectual kind of stuff of life, also with kind of the um, practical side of marketing of like you've got to get people in the seats. Um, so that was always very fascinating to me. Like I was going to like church conferences literally in high school. Like I was I was going to Catalyst Conference for example in high school. That's like a big national conference event for like really like cutting edge pastors and churches. Um, and I was like literally buying training courses in high school to learn more about like cutting edge marketing tactics for church leaders and pastors. Uh, and then when I got to college, I just got really like disillusioned with the whole studying Greek and Hebrew. And I went to a small Bible school in the twin cities and, um, it just kind of like burned me out on the whole, uh, ministry as a vocation track where like, I'm going to do this for a living, you know? Uh, and I kind of like in college, I just wanted to do what was interesting to me and something that I thought that I could make a difference in. And I don't mean that in a cheesy way, like, Oh, I wanted to make a difference. Isaac. I wanted to make a difference in the world. I mean, like when you're, when you're 18, 19, 20, pretty much no one at any point of your life has essentially given you any autonomy um, or authority over anything. They never really put you in a position where what you're doing actually matters, right? If you're working a, a typical high school job, you know, it's a minimum wage job. You're getting $8 an hour and $9 an hour. You don't really have any, you know, let's say you're working at Pizza Hut, right? You don't really have any say over how you market your local Pizza Hut branch or new ideas. You just have to do what you're told and follow the routine, Right. If you get an internship right on a political campaign or something when you're at you know college age, maybe you're into politics, uh, you're basically doing like a BS intern job. Like you're stuffing envelopes, you're making cold calls to donor lists, you know, you're marching in parades holding the candidate sign, you know, you're out door knocking. Uh, you know, all the all the stuff you do, yeah, in a, in a technical sense, it's important to the campaign. But you're not really involved at any like strategic level. So I kind of grab, I kind of gravitated towards anywhere that I thought people would actually give me authority and an important position. So uh, I, I ended up transferring schools, and then I transferred again. I took some online classes. Uh, I worked on a campaign for a guy who was running for U.S. Congress as an unpaid intern, and I ended up really doing all their marketing. I filmed some web videos for them. I did all the editing. Uh, I kind of managed their Facebook ads because this was in Facebook was like a brand new thing, and no one knew how to use it. So obviously it's like, well, let's give the 19 year old kid a whirl and maybe he can, you know, <laughs> that's like totally what it was. When uh, you, when you left the Bible college yeah, and I know you ended up finishing your degree online, uh, a little bit well, later. No, was, no were, I didn't actually ever finish. Oh, good, dropped, good. That makes I you even higher out, in that book. No, totally. Totally. I dropped out my senior year and my parents were horrified. Yeah. I was going to ask where when you left the Bible college, where that, was that hard for them? Yeah, it was, it was, it was hard, but. I was telling them like why I wanted to leave. And I think they understood it then. Cause it's actually where my mom um, went to college like way back in the day. And I was like, mom, this is insane. We have to go to an hour long chapel every morning and we have to literally scan our card to check in. And cause they, they track that you're there with like a scanning card <laughs> and they act literally have like guards at the back of the room to make sure no one leaves. Like you can't just scan in and then leave and not actually be there. Uh, and every, I think you were allowed to miss an average of once a week, but anything over your, your allotted times missed, like, I think it was like 
you're allowed 15 absences at chapel for the whole semester or 12 or something like that. Anything beyond that was like a $50 fine for every additional uh, missed chapel. And they would just put it on your tuition. And that's, that's, that's kind of the culture of the place I was at. So I was like, this is like a North Korean Bible college and (laughs) this is not how I roll. So, so so uh, you, did you, you went to, um, so a political campaign was the next thing that you did. Was that like over the summer? Yeah. So I, uh, I, uh, started just volunteering on a campaign. I think it was like June or July. And obviously that kind of wraps up in early November. And I really just try to contribute in any way I could. By the end of the campaign, I was actually helping write speeches for the candidate. I was writing our radio ads. I was very involved. And this is actually a really good example of how quickly education or how uh, quickly learning can occur if you have a motivation to actually learn what it is you're trying to learn. (laughs) So prior to this campaign, I was a very typical like conservative kid. I had grown up in like a Republican family, but my understanding of philosophy and politics prior to this was essentially Republicans good, Democrats bad. (laughs) A lot of complexity and nuance in there. No, I mean, seriously, like I didn't know anything beyond that. Like if you would have asked me anything about economics or you know, why I believed what I, but like, I had no idea. I just figured, Hey, it would probably look good. Right. To say I worked on a U.S. congressional campaign. <laughs> Listen, it, it, you know, it's, it's not a race for city council or a local race. It's like a federal U S congressional race. So that's why I did it. But very early on, I just realized no one would take me seriously unless I, uh, unless I, uh, could prove that I knew what I was talking about on the issues. Right. Cause I'm like 19. I already have the age thing working against me. Uh, and the candidate actually asked me in like my first month there, if I could, if I could do some research on the, uh, fair tax versus the flat tax, because that was a question that people had been asking him at town halls. Like, what do you believe in a fair tax or a flat tax? And he didn't really have a firm position. And he asked me to do some research for him. Cause obviously as a candidate, he doesn't have time to read a bunch of books and read a bunch of papers and articles and find out what he believes. He more so wants someone to do the research for him and kind of give him, give him a quick summary of it. And like, I'm like, sure. And I had never heard, I didn't know what the hell fair tax was or a flat tax. Like I didn't understand that in the U S even at that time that we had like a progressive income tax system. So this is how, like, this is how basically, uh, how ignorant I am of everything at this time. And so I just went on Amazon and I just started buying books about flat tax, fair tax. Um, I read as many online articles as I could. I think I read a book by Peter Schiff that was on like the recommended reading because of some of the books I had bought. Um, and basically in a, in a span of a couple of weeks, I just stayed up until midnight every night reading. And I became a semi-expert on tax policy, at least relative to 99% of the population, right? Um, and I was able to give my findings you know, to the candidate and he was really impressed. And that kind of began my interest in economics um, just because of that. You know, he, he had randomly asked me, hey, can you do some research? And now I'm probably more knowledgeable on economics again than, you know, 99 percent of the American um, population. And that, that, it's, such, that it, it's yeah. just such a great example of two things. The one that you mentioned that when you have an incentive to learn something, when there's some sort of payoff You'll learn it very quick. You'll learn it very quickly. And the other thing is just how easy it is to become 
an expert or part of the top 5% or 1% of people yep. with knowledge on any given subject. Like five books will make you more knowledgeable than 95% of the population on almost any subject. It's, it's just a really great, you, you know, you don't need, well, I, I need, you know, 10 years and whatever. I need 12 years <laughs> as a, and a K through 12 system. Yep. And then I need four years. And then, then I'll be smart enough. No, you need like 30 days and enough incentive and you can become an expert who can go talk about something on TV if need be, you know? Yeah. And, and I should add the nuance too that when I say I'm probably smarter than 99% of the population on economics, it's not because I'm brilliant or a genius because most people are so ignorant on economics. That yeah. Like, I mean, it's just one of those things you, yeah. don't, you don't have to know about it for most people's right, jobs right. and life. Yep. So they don't, you know? But yeah, I mean, so I, I made that transition and that was kind of the start of the candidate and the, the uh, team on that campaign starting to believe, hey, like this young kid actually, you know, knows a thing or two. We could maybe use him in a more involved role in the campaign. Um, so I pitched them on some web videos because this was a time where like people were just discovering on Facebook that, hey, if you film an interesting video, it can get a lot of shares. And shares is a very, very good way to spread a message without having to spend a bunch of money, you know, on uh, paid Facebook ads. This, you know, this, it's a campaign. They don't have a huge budget, obviously. So I was kind of tasked with uh, drafting scripts for videos we could film. Um, and uh, I had a couple of videos that went kind of so viral, I guess you could say, in like rural Minnesota in that local context, right? that we actually got newspaper interviews and radio interviews where the candidate was talking about the video because the video had gotten so many shares and views. So that kind of really sparked my interest in marketing because I did something that actually made a real impact in the real world. You it's know? amazing what that feedback will do. You get that. And this is how I know you're a sales and marketing guy. You get that high, like people are clicking, people are purchasing people. Like yeah, I yep. built something and people want it. Oh my gosh, this feels amazing. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So, so how did you, so that was in on the political campaign. How did you get into working with realtors and sort of become a, an entrepreneur? What made you steer away from pursuing, um, pursuing politics as a way to do that marketing and sales? Yeah. Yeah. So long story short, the next election cycle, which I believe was 2012, they asked me to come back and this time it was a fully paid role as kind of like the director of marketing and communications for the campaign. Like I was the marketing guy the next time. So I went from did, did the guy win by the way. Uh, no, we were, we were underfunded. I think like five, five to one, it was a total protest okay. race, but so they made it. So they made a second run though. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they did. And what I would say is that we did about, we, we, we got, I think, twice as many votes for our candidate than any GOP candidate had had in that district in 30 years. Um, so that was, that was really cool. We also raised like 10 times more money than any candidate had raised in that district in years. So, um, we all knew kind of that it was one of those campaigns where he's not going to win, but, um, I'm, I'm really actually proud about, uh, what we accomplished just in terms of you look at the baseline and I'm not trying to spin it as a success cause we got our ass whooped. Right. But, um, <laughs> if you actually look at what people did before us, like I'm, I'm actually very proud of what we accomplished. But so, so did you take that full-time role that was offered? I did. That was in 2012. And I did, I mean, that was basically my first my first real job that wasn't like working at Best Buy in high school for, you know, $8 an hour. That was my first real job where it was like a salaried 
You make me uh, feel old, by the way. When I was in high school, I was a grocery bagger, and the minimum wage was like four seventy-five. <laughs> well, my my technical first job, I, I worked at Sears, and it was a sales job actually. But uh, I think I was paid five twenty-five an hour at yeah. Sears. That yeah. was my that was my first job, and supposedly we were supposed to get like a commission on stuff that we sold. But often what I what I found out was happening later was my manager was like writing my sales down as his own. And uh, I, I quit that after three months because I was so pissed because I found out he would basically cost me like hundreds and hundreds of dollars, which is a big deal. Which is like millions when you're like 15, you know? Yeah, I was, I was 15 and like literally what was going on at Sears was my mom would drop me off at 4 p.m. after school and then she would have to come pick me up at 9.30 when my shift was done because I didn't yep. have a car. I was 15. So that's that's hilarious. But yeah, so long story short... I took a job with the campaign in 2012. Uh, we, I made a lot of contacts. I was doing everything from writing all the press releases to organizing the videos to writing the scripts for our commercials. I'm mean, really everything involved with marketing or communications on the campaign. I was doing like speech writing, um, everything. And I learned a lot. And that's what gave me the confidence to apply some of what I've been doing to the private sector. So basically when that campaign wrapped up, I decided I want to be a marketing consultant. Um, I had, I had, uh, talked to some other consultants, I guess I'd been working with campaigns and they said, yeah, so I charge campaigns $6,000 a month for my marketing consulting advice. And I was like, what? Cause I was being paid, you know, like $3,000 a month, which to me was a fortune at the time. But, uh, obviously if $3,000 a month is a fortune, then like $6,000 means you're like a robber baron. Yeah. You can and, buy an Island you know, yeah. on, a, on a lake in Minnesota. Yeah, so there was this campaign consultant that pulled up to a U.S. Senate office. He wasn't working with our campaign. Um, he was working on a guy who was running for U.S. Senate in Minnesota. And he pulled up to the campaign office in a Lexus. And uh, I uh, talked to him, and I found out, like, yeah, here's what he charges. You know, here's, he's, he's working with, like, you know, three campaigns right now. And I basically did basic math, and I'm like, holy crap, this guy's making twelve grand a month just working with these three campaigns, billing them a retainer every month for his advice. And he's driving a Lexus and every other car in the campaign parking lot. It's like a minor Christian miracle that they were still running. <laughs> right. So this guy, the God is my co-pilot bumper sticker was literally holding the bumper on. No. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm like, this is, this is phenomenal. This guy's a badass. You know, it was like that scene, uh, with Alec Baldwin. What's the movie where he goes into the realtors and he chews them out in that. Oh, Glenn Gary, yeah. Glenn Ross. Perfect. Perfect. It's totally like that. So I'm just in awe of this guy. And I'm just like, this guy's amazing. And you know, after, so after the campaign, I was like, I wonder if I could do this for small businesses. Cause I was burnt out working in politics. It's a lot of work, not a lot of pay. Really, the only way you can advance in politics is if you actually become a candidate. I mean, like you're never going to make good money and be working like, you know, have a work life balance if you work in politics. You just yeah. can't. So I decided Not I'm to mention the questionable moral scruples needed to uh, work for the larger and larger campaigns. <laughs> oh, ab absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I, I wanted out of that. Um, and what I did, honestly, was I just, you know, moved back in with uh, my parents back um, back in Minnesota so I could you know keep my rent cheap as in zero. And uh, I launched a marketing consulting business. And when I say launched a marketing consulting business, what most people would think is like, oh, he built himself a website, he went out and printed some business cards, 
maybe he bought ads in the local chamber of commerce magazine and you know the phone started ringing and he would get accounts no uh I didn't know how to build websites. I didn't really have any technical marketing skills beyond knowing how to like produce very basic and edit basic videos. So I'm not a web designer. I still to this day do not know anything about programming or code or web design or graphic design or really anything that you would consider like a hard skill of marketing. It was all strategy. I was good at strategy and I was good at pitching people on strategy. So what I did is I literally, I, I went door to door to local businesses back in my hometown. And, uh, I would do some research ahead of time on kind of what was the industry standard, what was the status quo in that person's in that person's industry, whether it was like a local car dealership, um, a coffee shop, a local restaurant. I talked to a pizzeria. I talked to a real estate brokerage. Um, let's see who else did I, I talked to like a health and wellness store that sold like you know, diet shakes and, um, diet bars and they had diet coaching programs for people. How, how many no's did you get for every yes? I think the first 11 businesses I talked to just told me no. And keep in mind, these were not warm introductions. I was literally walking into a business and if they had a receptionist, basically what I would say is like, Hey, I'm Tim Shermack. Um, is the manager available to talk? Because usually if you word it that way, they assume you're someone important. <laughs> and so I would get a meeting and then I would basically in that first meeting, I wasn't going to pitch them right there because that's like way too forward. What I would usually do is like, hey, I have some marketing ideas I think could work to bring in more people. Would you be available next week to discuss? So the only goal of that first meeting was to get an actual meeting that they agreed to hmm. because that at least builds some what I call sales momentum where you're moving towards something. Um, and so, and then, so that's what I did. And often, you know, I would type up like a 10 page marketing plan with all these details of what specifically I would do for them. And, you know, usually it was something where it was like, you know, I would bill them $3,000 to execute everything. Or, you know, I had some of them where it's like, I'm willing to do all of this for $1,000 a month, you know, like on a monthly basis. And it's, it's a laughable looking back because it's like, actually marketing plans that I wrote, like I still have them saved on my computer in like PDFs and stuff. <laughs> and like, I never would do any of that now for less than like 15,000 or less than $20,000. But, but this, is, it, this is the beautiful secret though. When you're 20, 20, 21, whatever, yeah, no, and you know, you don't have a lot of cachet with these people. You don't have a warm lead. The one thing you have, and young people do not realize what a massive advantage this is, is you have an incredibly low opportunity cost. You have zero opportunity. Yeah. So you're like, okay, even if I did this for free, doing this work for two months would be more valuable than almost anything else I could do for two, two months for the learning alone. So let me slap a price on there, a thousand bucks and see if they bite. Like you can do that when you're 30, you can't afford to do that. So it's really hard to learn new things and break into new industries. The more your opportunity cost goes up. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, I said, I was turned down by the first 11, I think. And in hindsight, I'm actually kind of proud of myself. Like, man, you had some balls going into local business owners <laughs> at age 20 and trying to convince them to pay you five grand or pay you three grand. Ign ignorance is a grand. huge asset sometimes because the yeah. things necessary to grab that first rung on the ladder are things that are sometimes so stupid, no one should really do them. And like, if you knew better, you wouldn't do them, but you, it's a good thing you didn't know better. Cause you kind of have to, you know? Oh yeah. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I so like, where, tell me your first client. How did you sign your first client? What was that like? Well, first I'd say I like vividly remember going into a meeting with a local financial advisor, a very like successful kind of local financial advisor back in my hometown. I mean, this, this is a guy who's probably making like a million dollars a year. And, uh, I literally went to like office Depot the night before and bought a briefcase. Cause I'm like, business people have briefcases. I have to have a briefcase when I walk into this meeting. <laughs> And I bought like a suit that probably didn't fit at all, but I never bought a suit before. So like, how the hell did I know how a suit was supposed to fit? <laughs> and, you know, so I like waltz in and I'm, you know, in my briefcase and I'm just trying to act casual. Like it's no big deal that like a 20 year old has a briefcase. Right. And I gave him this 10 page plan and they're like blown away. They're actually like loving all the ideas and everything. And ultimately I didn't get it because they said I was too young, mm-hmm. but they like loved all the ideas. And it was it's, it's funny because with that particular uh, lead, I had three different meetings with him and his entire staff. So for, for all I know, he just took all of my ideas and hired someone else who was older to do it <laughs> because he was successful enough where there's no way he would have taken his entire staff to listen to me pitch them on marketing strategy three different times unless he was actually really interested. So it's just kind of interesting how that works where people don't take you seriously just because you're young. But uh, I, I didn't let that stop me. And I kind of had the same thing happen to me with a local real estate brokerage where I saw how realtors were marketing. And I'm like, this is so dumb. All they do is they put a sign in the yard and they basically wait for another real estate agent to bring their buyer. So basically there's no marketing or promotion of the listings uh, of the listings uh, actually happening because they're just putting a sign in the yard. They're taking some pictures. They're uploading it to the MLS. And then another real estate agent, you know, the buyer's agent is actually the one, you know, effectively selling the house. And so I just saw so much opportunity there for how an agent could carve a larger market share, you know, by, for example, filming video tours of all their listings, like an actual video, kind of like an MTV episode of Cribs, where you would film a video tour of the house, every, you know, house you had, and you would promote that video with ads on social media, you know, on Facebook, YouTube, et cetera. And you could build an email list doing this because you could say, hey, opt in here with your first name and email to uh, watch the video tour of this house. And, you know, it all made perfect sense to me. I mean, it's it's you're capturing a lead of someone, you know, is in the market for houses, you know, you know where they live, whatever. I mean, the the bar in some ways in that in that industry is so low and, and you are raising it dramatically with all your clients, which we'll talk about in a minute. But that's yeah. a pretty amazing observation to have it at such a young age. So, so, so how did you, you got rejected by one real estate brokerage. How did you land one? Well, you know, again, I went through that whole process of, I had three different meetings with this guy. Um, I think he had a, he had a team of like, he had a full-time admin and then two buyer's agents. So he had an office, you know, like, you know, he's kind of the CEO essentially of this mini company and they just thought it was too expensive. Cause I think what I was going to do, <laughs> I think what I was going to do was like, uh, every house they sold, I wanted like $300, I think. And it's just laughable now. Cause that probably would have meant I would have been working for him full time for like less than $2,000 a month. <laughs> um, so in hindsight, I mean, I'm really glad he said no. Uh, but just by, you know, happenstance, essentially I got a referral to another realtor back, um, back in my hometown. And she had been referred, I think from someone who knew what kind of marketing work I did with a campaign, or maybe it was some other random project I had done years ago. Anyways, 
I got a warm referral of someone who recommended me. So this just goes back to what I know you always say, Isaac, of like, you know, your portfolio is your best marketing, like work you've done is your best marketing. Yep. And uh, so I got a referral and we met and literally what I did is I told her, hey, I will type up a marketing plan for you and I'll get it to you tomorrow. And she says, uh, okay. And this was a realtor who was not doing very well at all. Like she did not have a successful business. She really honestly didn't have money to pay me. Um, so what I did is I just went back and I changed the word document uh, on my computer of that like pitch I had given the uh, broker, you know, a couple weeks prior. And I literally just like inserted her name everywhere. It said the other guy's name. <laughs> so I just took the marketing plan I'd already written out and just like swapped out the name. So it looked like it was, you know, custom for her. Find, and, was, re find and replace has saved millions of hours. You got to, you know, crazy. yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I was going to do the same thing. So why like reinvent the wheel? So anyways. Uh, I, uh, met with her and I said, well, if you have no money to pay me, uh, what if I just take like 40% of all your commissions? Because I will essentially become your full-time marketing employee and I'm going to be bringing in all the business. All you have to do is show them some houses. Like I, you know, I was very clear with her. Like I'm doing the hard work because clearly right now you're not making any money. And you know, this probably sounded totally arrogant and just asshole ish coming from a 20 year old kid. Right. Because keep in mind, like I don't have a college degree in marketing. It's not like I was like a super smart homeschool high school kid who graduated from college at age 19 with a marketing degree. I was just like age 20 college dropout. Right. So in a small town, people look at you like something went wrong. in you, your life. You were a college dropout before it was cool, Tim. Totally. Totally. And I wear that like a badge of honor now. But um, at the time, she's probably thinking like this kid is crazy. And I, what I literally did, I remember that day is I drank a big old cup of coffee to give me caffeine motivation. And I read a book about sales pricing strategy, literally the hour before I went and met with her, because I wanted to make sure I would have the internal confidence when she told me that 40% of my commissions is way too expensive. I wanted to make sure that I would defend my price and not just cave in and be like, fine, how about 10%? <laughs> You know, so I literally read a book the hour before on sales pricing strategy just to essentially get myself hyped up. And then so I go to this meeting, I present it, and she bargains down, and we settled on 25% of the commission. So literally, I got 25% of everything she would make. Um, and obviously, if you help someone, you know, buy or sell, you know, a house, that commission might in, in my hometown, that commission might be five. She, she's getting what, two, three percent? Yeah. Yeah. So typically three. So that commission, you know, an average town or an average house in my hometown, the real estate commission is probably going to be $5,000 to $6,000. So like, I remember the very first check I got was like, I think it was a check for uh, 1500 or 1600 or something like that. It just blew my mind. It was a check made out to me for $1,600 for marketing consulting. And I was like, this, this is incredible. Like this, this high, you know, from, going from no contact to establishing a marketing deal with someone where I'm getting a percentage of their business for, you know, doing all their lead generation. This is incredible. Uh, but obviously what, like I didn't have any skills. So I had to use that money to hire, hire people to build her a website and to do graphic design. Cause I didn't know how to do any of that stuff. Right. Uh, so I kind of learned as I went and uh, eventually I made a transition into realizing that, you know, the industry as a whole across the United States, not just in my hometown, right? Uh, I could apply this strategy anywhere because everything I'm doing could essentially just be copied and pasted for any other agent in any other market. 
Um, so I don't, I don't know when it hit me, but like I had this realization eventually that like, why am I limiting myself to being a local marketing consultant when these exact same strategies, everything I've learned through experience could be leveraged across the country. Uh, so, you know, I, uh, learned Facebook ads, kind of taught myself that, you know, more or less. And I started running Facebook ads to realtors to say, Hey, if you want to get results like this person got, call me. And, uh, it grew and grew and grew. I eventually, um, hired, uh, my uh, cousin actually, who was a software programmer to build a custom software for me. So I wouldn't have to like jerry rig all these different software applications together to work in the marketing funnel. Cause this is like before really Infusionsoft was a thing, um, or, you know, HubSpot softwares like that. So I was using one software to create the landing pages I'd have to link it to another one to actually capture full contact information. Um, I'd have to link it to another one to actually send the automated email follow-up like MailChimp. Um, and then if they actually wanted a CRM where it was storing all that and somewhere easy to access, that would be a fourth software that I basically would have to sync together. And I just contacted my cousin. I was like, hey, can you build something that does all this in one? Uh, you know, really, really simply, like I'm not saying it has to be as complex as an Infusionsoft, but like just something that can do this and this and this, because right now it's, you know, please, please don't make it as complex as Infusionsoft. <laughs> oh, yeah, oh, yeah. So he's like, yeah, yeah, sure. I think I can do it. So over a course of like six months, I kind of got a beta out and it was literally just for me. I had no intention of selling. So it, was just, it was just internally as you get clients, you just need a way to manage all the work you're doing yeah. for them. Yeah. I was hiring him to basically build me an internal software that I could use for myself. And again, by accident, essentially, I was like, oh, wait, like we could actually sell the software as part of a broader marketing solution. So um, mm. we started charging $300 a month for kind of marketing consulting slash this marketing software solution for realtors. And part of it was that it wasn't profitable at $300 a month um, just because like there's not enough money coming in to cover our expenses of doing all of it. Um, but also I think a lot of realtors didn't trust that we could get them the results that we were bragging about for just $300 a month. It sounded like too good to be true. There, there is a, there is an amazing, I mean, you know, this from that book that you, uh, that you crammed before your first <laughs> deal about pricing. There's something amazing psychologically with pricing. I have noticed if you do say a referral program, if I say to somebody, Hey, if you get, if you know somebody who'd be a good fit for Praxis and you get them to apply and they get accepted into the program, I'll give you, you know, whatever. If I say $500, nobody will do it because it scares right. them away. They think yeah. $500, they must want me to do something really extensive. I don't know. If I say, hey, for every lead you give me, I'll give you a $5 Amazon gift card. They'll send me five. <laughs> it's like, yeah. and sometimes it's the other way around. If you offer to do all this stuff for just $300, people are like, yeah, that sounds like a ripoff. But if you're like, Hey, this is a $3,000 a month deal. It's like, Oh wow. It must really produce results. <laughs> you know? Oh, totally. Totally. I mean, it's just a rational response that people want to make sure they're not getting ripped off. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. So when the business really took off, I mean, the first two years sucked. Because I went from basically being a marketing consultant where I was making, let's just say, an average of $10,000 a month, which absolutely is a small fortune when you're 22 years oh, old. Oh, man. I was, I was 22 making ten grand a month. Um, I bought a Cadillac, um, like a brand new one, like uh, not a used you, one. You like gave me a ride in your Cadillac. I remember. Did I? 
Oh yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, yeah you brought yeah, me out to speak at some uh, HR conference. Yeah, you drove me out there from Minneapolis. It was that's hilarious. Yeah. So yeah, like at that time, I was making like ten grand a month. With I just you know I just thought like you know I'm a baller. Like I'm basically like a professional athlete right now. <laughs> I'm making ten grand a month. I'm living at home. I literally have no expenses. It's like ten thousand dollars a month of like disposable income. <laughs> and a lot of cold brew launch, coffee. Yeah, no, seriously, I could like, you know, order all the guac I wanted at Chipotle. <laughs> so to launch this company, though, I kind of just like, oh, well, let's let's make a real company out of it. Right. Because right now it's just me as a marketing consultant. And so when we did that, obviously, I had to bring the software programmer on board, uh, Aaron. He's my cousin. So he's getting like a percentage of all the revenues because obviously he wasn't going to quit his job to come work on this new project with me. You know, if I'm just paying him pennies, you know, so he wanted big equity in the deal, obviously. And for the first two years, Isaac, I don't think we ever eclipsed like $3,000 a month of revenue, like between us. Wow. <laughs> so for two years, like the only reason this was working is because his wife is a nurse. So she's making, you know, like four grand a month, whatever. She's essentially paying his bills. I'm literally living at home. So like I, you know, I could have low income, but the first two years, we I don't think either of us ever had a month where we were both able to take out $2,000 a month out of the business. In so, the so, th month. so that transition right there, that is a huge, scary transition because you were a very successful solopreneur, lifestyle entrepreneur, freelancer, consultant, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, right? exactly. You're, like you said, you're balling. You're doing 10K a month. You probably could have pushed that to 15 or 20K a month, you know, with some some efficiencies or some, you know, assistant here or there. But you saw the opportunity so much bigger to get to scale. We've got to have a monthly subscription, a platform thing. We've got to have a system that runs without me. But to build that, you're going to have to basically give up your lifestyle and that feeling of being a baller for an, in, an unknown amount of time. Was that? Did you ever have times where you questioned it and thought, man, I should just go back to being a consultant because this isn't working? Oh, Ab absolutely. And my cousin Aaron and I had fights all the time about it because like neither of us knew what we were doing and, you know, building a software company or building kind of, I mean, what's essentially a digital marketing agency is not the same skill set required to be a consultant. Right. So I was out of my element. I didn't really know what I was doing. Uh, Finally, Aaron, I remember Aaron sent me a message and I'm, I'm, I'm not at all saying this to like rag on him because it's actually really good. He did this, but he's like, Hey dude, if we don't grow to at least like $6,000 a month by the end of July, I'm going to have to quit and go back to my job because like, I can't keep doing this. And this was like in like late May. So basically he told me like, if you don't triple the company in the next two months, like I'm out and I got it. I remember thinking like, wow, you're a dick. But then I was like, wait, that wouldn't be that bad for me either. Cause I could go back to making 10 grand a month. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it was kind of like, well, I guess we'll try for the next two months and we'll see what happens. If not, like my life actually improves technically. <laughs> <laughs> so I just, I just went hard and we made a strategic decision that, okay, we're going to raise the price to $1,500 a month rather than 300. We're going to provide a lot more service, but it's going to be $1,500 a month. That is a huge uh, jump. Yeah, I mean, how, we how many clients did you lose? Uh, all of them. Um, <laughs> we didn't keep. We didn't keep any clients. We didn't keep any clients at the three hundred dollar a month level when we asked them to upgrade to uh, fifteen hundred. Yep. What had happened was, I again, honestly, what happened is I had read a sales book 
And I just got motivated. I was like, okay, we need to like massively raise our price because unless we have higher margin, we can't afford to provide the level of service and get people results that they would expect paying really any amount of money. Yeah. Right. And so we actually got people better results at 1500 than they were getting with 300. And I got one client. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I had one client who agreed to do 1500 and that was really all the emotional courage I needed. It was like, okay, cool. If I got one person to say yes, that means I can get anyone to say yes. Yeah. Well, and that's, and that's, that's worth five people saying no. So exactly, exactly. So we, we did that literally lost all of our other clients. Um, but then, uh, I, I started marketing this $1,500 a month service via value prop. Obviously became a lot clearer because now I can start pitching it as, Hey, we will become your marketing department. We're going to do all your lead gen. We're going to set up your website. We're going to set up retargeting with all your ads. Um, we will handle all marketing related functions for your business. And I kind of honed this like sales pitch when I would talk to people of like, Hey, if you tried to hire someone out of college with a marketing degree that doesn't know jack shit, you would probably have to pay them 30, $40,000 a year. You can hire us for $1,500 a month and you're getting the experience and knowledge of an entire team of people that specializes in working with realtors. And so would you rather pay $18,000 a year, which is 1500, you know, times 12, or would you rather pay $40,000 a year for some, you know, kid fresh out of school who majored in marketing that actually doesn't know anything about anything. (laughs) And so I really honed in that marketing pitch and we grew very, very quickly. And I think by the end of that year, so we had this awkward conversation in May, right? Where my partner was going to quit by the end of the year, we were at like, uh, $15,000 $15,000 a month or $18,000 a month, I think something like that. Hmm. So we had gone from essentially never cracking $3,000 a month to boom, we're at, you know, 18 grand a month. And I'm like, this is, this is really cool. And then over the summer, I'd been working on writing a book about all the strategies. And so I self-published a book um, called high hanging fruit, talking about kind of these ideas that we had pioneered of how realtors can generate local buyer and seller leads in their market. We use that book, uh, as a lead generation strategy for our own business. So I would, I would tell a realtor, Hey, I'll send you a free copy of my book. Just let me know where to send it. Obviously they would have to give me their address and all that. So I could call them and follow up once they got the book and have a sales conversation with them, you know, and see if they wanted to hire us because automatically I'm perceived as more of an expert. If I'm an author, if I've written a book, well, and you're creating, you're creating reciprocity. They got this nice and it's a, it's a beautiful book. Uh, they got this nice book from you that you had to, to, you know, print and ship and everything. Yeah, exactly. And now when you're like, Hey, can I get on the phone for five minutes? They feel like, okay, he kind of gave me, I got to give him at least five minutes. So they kind of feel this need to give you the take a little, you know, okay, you gave me something for free. You created value for me. If I never work with you, I just get, I mean, it's the same reason Nielsen used to the TV ratings used to send you a dollar bill in the mail and say, please do the TV ratings. Cause you feel like, all right, they gave me something. The least I can do is give them a few minutes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, Isaac, I've mailed about thousands of books at this point to realtors across the country. Like what's your conversion rate on those books for every book mailed? How many clients would you say you add? Um, I wouldn't be able to client. How many books does it take? I guess. I mean, I know it's hard to track. I, I probably could tell you on a, on a, on a, like a, what's, what's the return on capital. I don't know how many books, but Right now, we have this so fine-tuned where we will do a webinar on Facebook. 
I'll spend $1,000 in one day driving traffic to a webinar to get people to sign up. And the strategy that we use, that's just killing it. And I think it would work in any other industry too. So if, if anyone out there is listening to this that you think this could work for you, it really worked for us. I never do a webinar more than essentially 12 hours in advance. So what I would do is I will start an ad at like 1 p.m. And it'll say free training tomorrow and tomorrow's in all caps. Because the problem with webinars is it's easy to get people to sign up. Yeah. But often they forget or they lose interest. So the average show up rate for most webinars is 15 to 20 percent. Well, and when you're trying to do marketing, that's considered good. Well, when you're trying to promote all of your products and things on a daily basis, if you have to keep promoting a webinar for a three week period before it happens, you start to get really tired of it. Like how many more tweets and posts do we have to do reminding people about this webinar? I, I really like that. Like really short term time frame. That's a great, that's a great, it, it idea. just, it just creates massive urgency. Right. So, and then even in the email autoresponder that I send out, we're getting like an 80% open rate on that. Cause literally what the email says is webinar tomorrow, all caps. Hmm. So everything is super short term. There's no one's going to lose interest or no one's going to forget because they see an ad for it at 7 PM and the webinar is at 1 PM tomorrow afternoon. Hmm. It's not even 24 hours a day. It's, you know, it's, less than 12 hours away. Mm. So the industry average is across, or, or not uh, not the industry average, but I guess the average for webinars across all industries is you're, you're doing well if you can get a 15 to 20% show rate. Mm. So if you get you know, 100 people to register, you're doing well if you can get 15 to 20 people to sign up. I average 40% to, to 50% show up rate. Wow. So I'm over double what is considered actually good. And I've, I've actually, it's, it's, it's funny cause I've listened to podcasts of like these gurus that charge thousands and thousands of dollars for advice on online marketing and advice on webinars and all this stuff. And they're bragging about getting a 25% show up rate. And I'm over here like getting a 40% like, Oh, well <laughs> apparently we're doing something right. And so anyways, to answer your question, Per every $1,000 we spend to drive traffic to the webinar, um, we'll probably pick up, I could, I could conservatively tell you, three clients from that webinar that'll pay $1,500 a month. Hmm. So on an, on an annualized basis, I mean, a client is $18,000 um, a year. So basically from spending $1,000 one time, I pick up $54,000 in annual recurring revenue. What is your, do you, what's your churn? Do you, do you lose clients ever? Yeah, we, we, uh, I, I'd say that we are average client, average client retention is probably close to a year, honestly. Okay. Um, because there's, there's, there's some people who will quit after, like two months just because like they're not doing the work. We yeah. Well, I know, I know in real estate, it's often maybe like, uh, you've got a couple and one of them has a full-time job and one of them's a realtor and they kind of just do it on the side. And they're, they often are in a situation where they're not willing or able to put in, treat it like a full-time job. So I can see if you're like not, if you're not willing business. to go all in, it's not worth it for you. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, we have clients that have literally been with us for two years or even three years. They've been paying every month. So we don't have a problem with retention. Honestly, the, the, uh, the uh, biggest, the biggest challenge we've faced in the last year is I'm having to learn a whole new skill set over again 
of how do I go from being really good at marketing? Like I'm a very good copywriter. I'm, I'm very good at describing, or I'm, I'm very good at uh, designing rather marketing campaigns. I mean, as I just said, like somehow by accident, I found a way to double the average show up rate for webinars. Um, it wasn't any master plan I had. I just thought to myself, well, I would be more likely to go to a webinar if it said tomorrow, because then it's urgent. So that's what I did. And apparently it's, it's uh, working. But so I have all these marketing skills and these sales skills, but I've never been taught or I've never learned how to actually grow a business. And what I've discovered over the last year is that is a skill in and of itself, like knowing how to, or how to hire, knowing when you need to hire. Um, it's totally my fault. I basically working on your business instead of in your business. Yeah, very yeah. different. Yeah, exactly. I basically ruined all my employees lives over the summer because <laughs> I didn't hire fast enough and our marketing funnels were so effective at bringing in new clients, but we didn't have the capacity to actually handle all those new clients. So basically my whole team, um, I'm not, this is not hyperbole. I'm not exaggerating. They've been working 12 hours a day all summer long. And so I basically had to give them all raises because I didn't want them to quit thinking that, Oh, well, if I work for Tim, he's going to make me work 12 hours a day. For, <laughs> Chained know? to the desk with no fan. Yeah. I mean, seriously. So I was like, Hey guys, this is totally my fault. Like basically our marketing was a lot more effective than Tim's skill at building a business. Yeah. So I've, I've learned now that we've hired far in advance of what our capacity is. So right now we have, I mean, I've hired two additional people just in the last couple months. We could double our revenue and we wouldn't have to hire anyone more right now. Cause I made that mistake before of not hiring quick enough. Uh, so, I mean, I'm, I'm learning how to grow a business kind of as I, yeah. as I do it. But uh, now it's finally getting to the point, as you said, where I'm working on the business, not in it. Um, you know, if I wanted to, I have such awesome team members on board. They're trained in. Um, we have kind of our internal system on, you know, locked down that, I mean, I could actually take a month off and the business would keep humming along without um, any problems. And that's, that's incredible to me. I mean, that's a huge shift. That's a powerful yeah. Now it's you know, actually a business. Yeah. You've built something that's, that's pretty amazing. So, so in, in the, in the next five to 10 minutes here, I don't want to, I'm going to take too much more of your time. I want to ask you a little bit about, you've mentioned it at several points in this conversation that you needed to know something, you read a book or even uh, earlier when you were interested in being a, a pastor, you would go to these conferences. Um, you have an amazing habit and, and I love it. I want to, I, I try to do this, but you do this better than pretty much anybody I know. Uh, Derek McGill, who works for me, is very good at this as well, but I, I wanted to rub off on me. And that is you invest in yourself and you don't worry about, you have like an abundance mindset where you're not like trying to pinch pennies and, oh, oh, I was going to buy this book on marketing, but it's $29. Uh, let me just, yeah, I guess I, you're just like, if it makes me better, I'm going to buy it. If there's a conference I can go to, that's going to give me some connections, going to make me better. I don't care what two grand, five grand, let's go do it. If can I, is there a book that will make me better? I'll buy it. I mean, you just buy books, you read books voraciously, you go to a lot of events and things. You seem to not look back and be like stingy or worried that you might waste money. You seem to have this mentality that you can't invest in yourself fast enough and you're just willing to do that, whether it's investing for your own knowledge or just, you know, buying books for people that you like and sending to them, even in your business with high hanging fruit. But even just personally, I've received awesome books from you in the mail before unprompted. 
you just, you don't seem to feel stressed by that. You have that, you have that abundance mindset, a, a paradigm of plenty, if you will. Is, do you have a deliberate strategy there when it comes to investing in your own knowledge and social capital and just a willingness? I know you authored the chapter in Why Haven't You Read This Book called Why Haven't You Flown First Class, which all of you should go read. Uh, Why Haven't You F Flown First Class is, is in the book. You can actually get a free audio book of just that chapter on whytrb.com. And it's basically about this mindset. Like, don't be cheap invest in yourself, pay to fly first class. The connections you'll make in first class are going to more than make up for it on average. Did you have to cultivate this or are you naturally this way? And what's your sort of approach and philosophy with all this stuff? Yeah. Yeah. I think I've always been, and I have to be careful in how I describe this because I totally get that it can sound cheesy because there's a lot of people out there who will say like, you know, go buy a thousand dollar suit, like before you can afford it because you'll feel confident or, <laughs> You know, I mean, like that's actually written in a bunch of sales books, like go buy a new car before you can afford it because it'll make you feel like a badass or whatever. But I am more afraid of not growing my income than I am of losing money. Hmm. And so let me repeat that. I'm more afraid of not growing than I am of losing money or staying. So, so the fear of missing out on a big win is stronger for you than the fear of losing what you currently have. Yeah. I mean, I have very minimal loss aversion. Like if, if something seems to me like it could make me money or it could make me smarter at marketing, it could like, you know, make me a better business person, a better entrepreneur. I will basically do it. Uh, Cause most people are so on the opposite side of that, that uh, it really holds them back. I mean, I'll just be brutally honest right now. You know, Anyone, anyone listening to this podcast probably thinks that, oh, you know, Tim's got his life figured out. It sounds like he has his company now. He has six employees working for him. He just said that he could take a month off and the company would keep humming along. He's really got things figured out. Far from it. Right now, I have, I think, $30,000 on my credit cards. <laughs> okay. I've, I'm taking about $5,000 a month out of the company as my salary. Because we're in growth mode right now. I mean, if I if I wanted to a year ago, I could have started paying myself twenty thousand dollars a month or thirty thousand dollars a month, and just kind of kept things where they were instead of you know growing. But right now, I'm literally paying myself five thousand dollars a month. I have like a twenty five thousand or thirty thousand dollar credit card balance right now that I'm paying interest on, because I keep investing in things that'll grow the company, and I never am able to finally pay down my credit card balance. Uh, so I'm, I'm not saying this from a position of like, oh, I've got it figured out. I have so much money in the bank that I can afford to do all this stuff. I can't. I started doing all this when I couldn't afford to. So I would, I, I would go to marketing conferences. And this is back when I was living back in Minnesota with, you know, not really any money living at home. I would go to marketing conferences that were like $3,000 a ticket. The only people there were like, highly successful, highly paid marketing consultants that were already probably making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. Cause those are typically the people that are at a conference where it's $3,000 a ticket. Right. I would just be like, well, I'm going to put it on my visa and hopefully I learn something that allows me to get a client when I get back that I can charge $3,000 for consulting and break even. That's how I would think about it. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I remember going out for a consulting session where I hired this kind of marketing, um, this marketing guru who is really good with Facebook, Facebook ads and digital marketing and how to set up funnels and everything. And I was kind of a newbie in that, I, you know, I just kind of was self-taught and he was considered like an industry expert in lead generation and kind of the advanced intermediate Facebook ad strategies. And it was 5,000. Yeah, it was $5,000 to consult with him for one day. And I was like, well, I'm going to put it on my car. <laughs> if, if I can do this and fly out to uh, Vegas, he was literally renting one of Paul Pierce's old houses. So <laughs> the truth. Yeah. I, uh, I flew out to Vegas and basically got to hang out in Paul Pierce's old house where this guy lived. And I spent a day with him for $5,000 and he taught me kind of everything he's doing. And it was one of the best investments uh, I had ever made, but like, I'm not making this up. I mean, it sounds almost like too good to be true. Like it should be like a Hollywood story or something, but like I literally maxed out my card in paying him and in buying the airfare. So when I got there, I actually didn't have money for food for kind of the two <laughs> days I was with him. So I, I'm not making this up whenever we were sitting next to each other on the office table, um, you know, or like over his desk or talking or whatever, cause it was a consulting day, right? Like I would look away from him slightly when I was talking because I didn't want him to smell my awful breath because I hadn't eaten anything in like 48 hours. You know, and your breath just reeks after you haven't had food. You kind of get that dry, like you have that morning breath. I had morning breath essentially for 48 hours in a row because I literally did not have money for food. My card was maxed out. Uh, but I got back and I was able to figure things out and, uh, you know, paid all of it off because I went out and got some clients that I was able to charge a couple thousand dollars a piece for marketing consulting <laughs> of strategies I had literally learned less than a week ago, you know, and then that's, I that's, that's what amazes me is the speed that just, that seems to be a theme. Like when you need something, you can do it fast. And I don't think as much as you are absolutely brilliant and talented, Tim, I don't think that's unique to you. I don't think that's out of reach for most reasonably intelligent people. They underestimate how fast you can do something. If you need to build a website really bad in 30 days and you tell someone, yeah, pay me three grand, I'll build you a website in 30 days and you've never done it before, you can probably learn how to yeah. do it. You know, um, it's it's truly amazing how much you can you can do so much faster than this sort of tracked mindset we have of, you know, you need years and years and decades of preparation and study before you ever get out there and, you know, hop on the bike and try to ride it. I mean, you know, push a kid on a bike down a hill, uh, with, <laughs> with no training wheels a couple times and they'll, they'll learn it pretty quickly. Um, what, one other thing I wanted to touch on with you is this concept of social proof, which is really powerful in marketing. And you are really a master of this. I mean, so I, I, I razz you about it all the time. I love to razz you about your copywriting and call it schmaltzy, uh, which resulted in you sending me a book of schmaltz recipes, which was uh, well played. Um, I like I to razz you about your- I, I actually didn't know that schmaltz was a real word prior to that because I went on Google <laughs> and I found a book of like schmaltz recipes. Like apparently it's a term that means like, like fat. Or... Yeah, it's like a rendered fat or something. Yeah. You see you, I used the word schmaltz once and then you went and learned a bunch of uh, Yiddish slang in like 10 minutes. So, um, but social proof is something you, you do a lot of posts of sometimes it's a screenshot of text messages you're getting from clients, but a lot of real time sort of raw 
where there they'll even be like, you know, typos and stuff. Cause it's like an actual client email that they sent you real quick that says, right. Tim, oh my gosh, this platform is amazing. I just signed, I just sold two houses for half a million each. This rocks. And you're just really good at sharing that kind of stuff so that by following you, I feel like I almost feel like I have a, a dashboard into your business. Like I can tell when it's growing because I'm seeing all these testimonials. That's really powerful. I know that's been huge for you. What, what is, what, so where did you do come onto this concept that like social proof is key and what would you sort of give as tips or advice in that? Well, the, the, uh, the more that your business, like the sale you're trying to make, like, let's just talk about Praxis for a second. Praxis is kind of similar to my business where it's a high trust gap in the sales process. It's not as easy as like, oh, I'm choosing between going to McDonald's for a quick burger or going to Burger King. Or, you know, I'm choosing between do I want uh, Nike basketball shoes or do I want Under Armour basketball shoes? I mean, choosing to do Praxis and invest in the Praxis program is a major investment, right? Yeah, of, it's, it's of, like a lifestyle decision. Like, Yeah, it's like a major decision. Yep. It's the same thing to hire my company. Uh, most, most people that work with Platform, they're actually investing $3,000 a month because our fee is $1,500, and then I tell them to budget at least $1,000 a month towards the actual ad spend. So they're actually investing $3,000 a month. So, I mean, to, f- from their perspective, even though we are grossing – 18,000 a year from their perspective, they're actually spending like over $30,000 a year, um, with this platform strategy. So it's not just something where you can put up some sales bullet points and show them a couple slides and then hopefully they make the decision to hire you, right. Or hopefully they make the decision to do practice. Um, where I stumbled upon this social proof is in the sales calls that I would do with, with, uh, these realtors after I would do a webinar. Um, in these sales calls, I just found that they would often mention that, oh, I was really inspired by this person's story. I was really inspired by that case study. And again, like I just learned this by doing, it wasn't really a great light bulb idea I had. I just got this feedback from people that what was really connecting with them was the successful case studies where we were sharing, Hey, the platform strategy doubled this person's business or it tripled that person's business. And so I just realized, oh, cool. Well, let's just start focusing on telling those stories more. So now this really super duper like webinar I mentioned that's converting crazy high percentage of people um, into hiring us, like half of it is honestly just testimonial videos. Like Mm -hmm. I talk about, I talk about one of the strategies we use and then boom, my next slide is a 60 second testimonial video from a happy client. And then I talk for another five to 10 minutes about this other strategy we use as platform and then boom, a 60 second testimonial video. So if someone joins us for a webinar, not only have they heard me talk for probably, you know, 45 minutes about kind of the substance and the nuts and bolts of what we do with platform marketing, they've also heard probably seven to 10 real case studies, like videos of our clients breaking about how awesome we are. Hmm. Uh, So that it works really well in the context of a webinar. It also works really well in Facebook or wherever else. Um, that you're advertising or marketing. I mean, I mean, I, I've seen you, I have seen you gain clients right there in the comments. Feed. In the comments. See you yeah. post, you know, this client with text message that says, Hey dude, great to chat with you again. So after just spending 2000 this month, I just earned, you know, 10,000 worth of commissions from all the sales or whatever. 
it's amazing to have this. And then I'll see come and say, whoa, what is this? I'm a realtor or I've got a friend who's a realtor. Yeah, and How can like, I get on board? Please call me. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's amazing. So the the, the uh, higher the trust gap you have in the sales process, the more important social proof is because the less important what you say um you know, is from their perspective. So if someone's listening to Isaac Morehouse talk about how great he thinks Praxis is, yeah, that's great. Of course you're going to say that you own the freaking company. <laughs> or if they're, if they're listening to Tim Shermack talk about how great he thinks platform is, um, you know, like it's like, even if they agree with all the strategies, even if they're like, oh yeah, that sounds good. Like intuitively I can see how that would work really well. There's something missing. There's, there's social proof missing. So the higher the trust gap, meaning like, you know, it's hard for someone to make a decision to invest in Praxis. It's hard for a realtor to justify investing $3,000 a month for our program. The higher the trust gap, the more important social proof becomes. So, 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 here, so here's the application for those of you who don't have a business or don't have a bunch of clients to use as social proof. This is the same principle that we talked about earlier with your portfolio, your work, let that speak for you. When, when we launched Praxis, you know, we didn't, we didn't have any participants yet. We didn't have any graduates yet. It was our claim that you will have, you will learn a ton and you will get an amazing job. And this is going to be better than anything else was just a claim. Now that we've got, nothing works better than saying, uh, you know, Charles Porges, he's not even 18 and he just got hired on full time, uh, at a SaaS startup and he is killing it. You know, our average part, our average graduate is making over 50,000 a year to have those stories that has just, that's when things have just started to take off and go nuts. But the, the way as an individual, if you want to apply this to your life, think about rather than talking about here's who I am, what I've studied, what my resume bullet points are, activities engaged in, show outcomes, any of them, even if it's as small as if your resume has server at Applebee's as a bullet point, that's just an activity. But what if you said server at Applebee's during my shift tips were up 10% higher than the average shift at Applebee's. Exactly. Now you've exactly. got, that's a, that's a tiny slice of social proof. Now someone other than yourself saying, you know, leadership skills, sales skills, you've got some proof of that. Anytime you substance. can attach that. Yeah. It's huge. So, so Tim, I've got to thank you. First of all, just for being a hell of a guy, a great friend, interesting, fascinating. Uh, you make me better and push me in a lot of ways, but specifically, you got Praxis thinking about content marketing in a more sophisticated way very early on. You actually, you and I sat down before Praxis was even live. The website hadn't gone live. It was just an idea. I was kind of building it, putting it on my credit card, trying to get the website up. And we met out in Vegas at a conference for coffee. And I don't know if we had ever met in person. We had emailed no, for, that was, for a that couple was the years. first time we had met. Yeah, we had known each other over email from a couple years for different stuff. And you're like, let's get coffee. And you're like, hey, I love this Praxis idea. Here's what you need to do. You need to write a book. And here's what the outline should be. And it should be, you know, why uh, college is way of the past, you know, the future of higher education. You should have a chapter on this, chapter with your story, a chapter of this, this. Here you oh, go. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, like, and you give me this outline. I, I think, and you're like, I, I, I can think. build it for you. I can do all this stuff. That's and I'm true. like, I'm like, I don't have any money. I don't know anything about if this business is like, okay, that's a cool idea. But like writing a book, I don't have the time to do that. I'm like working my full-time job while I'm trying to build this startup. Like writing a book just seemed far off. A couple months later, Jeff Tucker at Liberty.me said, hey, I want to publish a guide to education. Will you be willing to write it? 
And I'm like, he's like, it's going to be like a small sort of ebook guide. And I'm like, uh, you know what? Let me get that outline Tim gave me. And I literally basically copied your outline to write the future of school, which is been a phenomenal resource for us that kind of is the philosophical foundation behind what Praxis is all about. And we've used that tremendously as a, as a lead generation tool. Hey, go to thefutureofschool.com, download the free book. And then, you know, if you're interested in the program, um, yeah. let us know, let's talk. We, we, we can email you and ask you, how'd you hear about the book? That was you, man. You wrote that baby. You wrote the outline and, and sort of gave me the ideas. And I was, um, I didn't, I didn't value it enough, but man, how right you were. So kudos <laughs> well, to you. I actually remember having a conversation with you about like the actual title, the future of school. And I was at, <laughs> I was adamant. I was like, you have to title this the future of school. Yeah. Well, my original title, because so it was first published at liberty.me and then I repurposed it and sort of rebranded it with the Praxis brand once we actually had, you know, design sure. elements and things once we were legit. And the original title was um, Rethinking Higher Education. And you were like, that title sucks. And and I have gotten so much better, by the way, at titling blog posts, at just writing marketing copy. Well, it, it, it just totally sounded like a white paper from a think tank. Yes, yes. And I was like, education. And I was like, you know? Yeah, I was like, you've got to title it the future of school. And you're like, but Praxis isn't about school. And I said, well, that's what people will connect with because that's. Dude, that's, I love your impersonation of me. That was that's really good. That's where it's at. <laughs> well, and, and I think you had some great subtitles too that we sort of A-B tested and it was like, you know, um, you had some pretty radical ones. Uh, and I, I, I went with rethinking higher education for the next generation, which was a little bit more, you know, <laughs> my sort of understated non schmaltzy way, but I've learned like, man, you know what you're talking about. You're really good at copywriting and, and you've really, you've really helped me in that way. So, so, so where can people go? Cause I know I guarantee you some people listening to this are either realtors or they know people who are realtors who are like, holy crap, I could be getting amazing leads coming to me. My listings could be turning out. I could have this whole marketing setup. Where do you, where would they go if they're interested in that? Yeah. So, uh, we have a bunch of realtors around the country where like if they've hired us and actually followed our system, we've doubled or tripled their business. I had a guy in Colorado who grew his business from doing about 150,000 a year to over $700,000 a year of income. And it's literally just him and like an assistant. So he grew his business from 100 something to seven. So that's not tripling. What is that? Uh, I don't know. Se sex tuppling. Something. I, out I outsource I my math to that. calculators. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, by the way, my first act of entrepreneurship actually was I didn't want to do my math and science in college and I was an online student. So it's easy to cheat. So I would, I hired an engineering student at the university of Minnesota to log in and take all my quizzes and tests for me. And I hired, uh, like a, I think it was a chemistry student to take all my science and biology stuff. And, uh, so that's how I got my way through like the boring core curriculum of online schools. I literally outsourced it to people that were good at it. So, I love uh, it. that was my first, first experience in that. No, but if, if someone's interested in hiring us, we do have lots of like case studies where we've doubled or tripled or even more people's businesses. So um, either shoot me an email at timchermak at gmail.com, T-I-M-C-H-E-R-M-A-K at gmail.com. Uh, or actually, I mean, honestly, I'd probably say the first step is reading my book because I'd be happy to send you one for free. So if you want a copy of the book, just go to highhangingfruitbook.com. My book is called High Hanging Fruit, kind of a play off the phrase low hanging fruit, because what we specialize in is helping realtors build a pipeline. So kind of our, uh, our phrase for that is high hanging fruit. You hear us 
actually use that phrase with our clients all the time. So the book is called High Hanging Fruit. Uh, you can get a free copy at www.highhangingfruitbook.com. And I actually personally autograph and ship all those out. So it's not being like warehoused to some random factory in India or the Philippines. Like if you sign up for a book. <laughs> no, I, I see pictures all the time of you uh, with stacks of books, uh, putting yeah, them in boxes, like, signing them on your um, way to in between yeah. Chipotle stops. We uh, just shipped out another 50 like today. So um, if you're a realtor or someone who knows a real estate agent or broker that's listening to this, uh, highhangingfruitbook.com and uh, I'll get you uh, an autographed copy. Tim, I love it. This has been an absolute blast. Um, let's hope that one of our two teams can stop the Bears and Packers in the NFC North. Yeah, I mean, there's there's always the links. <laughs> the Minnesota Lynx. You got that going for you. Hey, man, this has been awesome. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Isaac. Hey, if you're a fan of the show, do me a huge favor. Go to iTunes, give it a rating or a review. A rating is only a simple click of a button, or if you're on your phone, a tap of a finger. And it will help people find the show a lot easier. And if you have a little extra time, write a review. What you think about the show? Honest opinion. That stuff goes a long way in giving more exposure to the podcast. What do you get out of all of it? You get the pleasure of knowing that as more people start listening, you get to say, I was there first. <laughs>